Hello and welcome. My name is Sophia Besch and you're listening to the CER podcast. Right. Hello and welcome and welcome back. It was my first week back in the office after a lovely holiday last week and it was a busy start because the EU was back in business as well with the Bratislava Summit, with Jean-Claude Juncker's State of the European Union address and so much more to talk about, really. I'm sitting down today with Ian Bond, Director of Foreign Policy, and Agata Gaskinska-Jakubowska, who is a research fellow here at the CER. And we're going to look back at the last week in EU affairs and try to make sense of it. And I think what I want us to focus on in particular is, on the one hand, the results of the summit, specifically what has been decided on EU defense cooperation, but also perhaps at how EU leaders plan to deal with the Eurosceptic populism that is present not just in Britain, and what Bratislava tells us about the ongoing power struggles between EU national member states and EU institutions. Bratislava was a special moment, a special meeting for the EU leaders, of course, because it was the first time that they met at 27. Theresa May, the British Prime Minister, was not invited. And so many were expecting EU leaders to demonstrate the EU's credibility and legitimacy even without the UK. Agata, how did they do? Well, I think that the European Council President and his entourage, they tried to manage the expectations. I think that most um, EU experts agreed that we shouldn't expect too much uh, from this informal meeting, and we didn't get <laughs> a lot from from this from this meeting. But I guess that the idea was basically to, as you said, to manifest unity um, mm. in light of the uh, mounting crisis and following the Brexit vote. Um, if you look back at the initial response um, following the referendum outcome, the only thing we could see was basically the EU cacophony, EU meeting in different smaller groups, different um, narratives and uh, responses. I think that the idea uh, that uh, Tusk had in mind was basically to come together and to at least initiate mm. a discussion about the future of the European Union. But even this, he didn't actually manage to achieve. Ian, in hindsight, do you think then that this was a Brexit meeting? Um, Theresa May was not invited, of course, but did they use the absence of Britain to discuss strategy, to discuss Brexit, or uh, did they use Britain's absence to actually discuss the things that they need to talk about without any distractions? Well, as far as I can tell, I mean, there was certainly a sort of Britain-shaped hole in, in Bratislava. Um, but, you know, the, the curious thing for me is that in a way it's an agenda which any British government would have been delighted to see, that they were talking about <laughs> so. jobs and growth and competitiveness. Right. They were talking about uh, counter-terrorism and security, and they were talking about tackling the migration crisis. And, you know, if the British had been at the table, I think they would have been delighted that they were talking about those sorts of things and not about uh, further institutional integration or uh, uh, other painful subjects for the, for the British. And even on defence, where uh, the, the British are often the most difficult people at the table, mm. uh, you know, one of the, one of the points that uh, leaders were able to agree on in Bratislava was that the EU-NATO declaration which they issued at the NATO-Warsaw summit should now be put into force as quickly as possible. And that 
again, I can't imagine any British Prime Minister saying anything other than, yes, I quite agree with that. Now that you bring it up, let's talk about defence a little bit, because that was ahead of the summit. And during one of the major topics, I think, that leaders wanted us to take away from the meetings. Um, we've had, in the week before the summit, a French-German proposal for more EU defence cooperation and an EU defence union. Um, and what the two countries ask for, maybe just briefly, is in broad lines a better coordination of EU defence procurement and support for EU defence industries, um, more money and better spending on EU defence research, and a permanent EU operational headquarters, and within that several proposals to make EU military operations more effective. Um, a lot of this is, in my opinion, at least very sensible, and I think you're right to say that on a lot of this the Brits would actually agree and would have to agree. Um, there might now be a window of opportunity for more defense cooperation. I think leaders are seizing this. One reason why there might be a window of opportunity is, of course, that the British veto is no longer there. And while the Brits would have to agree with a lot of uh, what has been said, especially the operational headquarters might be one where the UK is actually not on board. And we have, right after the Bratislava summit, had a statement from the British Defence Minister, Michael Fallon, that the UK, as long as it could, would veto uh, these plans for more cooperation. Ian, do you think that that was a wise decision? No, I think that was an idiotic <laughs> thing to say. Uh, I mean, the fact is, we do still have a veto for at least the next two years, as mm. long as we're in the organisation. Uh, but the idea that it's sensible to wield a veto, especially on something so trivial as this long-standing question of a, an EU operational yeah. headquarters, seems to me to be uh, very doubtful um, tactics on the part of Michael Fallon, and I'm rather disappointed that he's gone down that route. After all, one of the reasons that the EU might benefit from having an operational headquarters of its own is that it is conducting a lot of operations which are... Uh, run from scattered headquarters across the, the EU rather than having a single planning uh, cell or uh, headquarters where you can tackle these things on a permanent basis. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The only thing that's slightly funny about this is that now we have finally um, former Brexit campaigners acknowledging that the UK does actually have a veto on EU defence cooperation, that an EU army is not inevitable, but um, this is not what we're talking about now. But um, since you mentioned uh, myths that actually floated around during the referendum campaign, you know, EU army was only one of the myths that was spread uh, during the campaign, mm -hmm. campaign, but there was also another problem, uh, particularly important for the Visegrad countries, that is EU migrants living in this country right. very often um, seen and portrayed as those who would only be interested in um, in benefits rather than contributing to, to EU economy. I think that the EU leaders that governed in Brussels, at least some of them, actually acknowledge that there is a problem with the communication uh, between yeah. the EU and um, you know citizens in individual member states. That at least is something that the joint statement of the Visegrad Four um, argued, and they said that the EU should draw lessons from what happened in, in Britain and should also make a more positive case for the internal market, which obviously consists of four um, uh, freedoms, and uh, also defend you know, the, the, the very fundamentals um, 
of the yeah. single market, the, which is not the, easy. <laughs> the irony of the Visegrad Four doing this, though, at a time when at least two of the members are uh, vigorously attacking um, EU, the EU and EU values and principles. Um, you mean Hungary and the Czech Hungary, Republic? Well, actually, Hungary and Poland are the Hungary ones that I have in mind. Well. Yes, there's also the Czech president, <laughs> so we've got three out of the four. Um, but you know, the, there is a there is an irony there. Mm. I think I have to say, however, that there is a point there, and it's a point that was also raised by Jean Claude Juncker in his uh, State of the EU address, um, which is that there is a tendency in many EU countries, not just in the UK, to uh, blame the EU for everything that goes wrong mm. and to claim credit for the wisdom of your own national mm. government for everything that goes right. And actually, both the praise and the blame need to be spread around a little more evenly. I think you both bring up a really important, or several really important points. One is the point of unity, which you mentioned in the beginning, Agatha. I think there was an expectation for many that Bratislava should serve most of all to demonstrate unity and to demonstrate that even without the UK, EU leaders can still agree on at least some issues. Um, and I want to ask both of you how far you think that they were succeeding, considering especially um, on the one hand the Visegrad statement, which is very positive, but which is also a separate statement from the Bratislava roadmap, I think they called it. And on the other hand, in light of the Mediterranean summit that we've had ahead of Bratislava, where um, southern European leaders were criticizing German austerity policies, were criticizing a German union. Perhaps I will start from this Visegrad joint statement. Uh, it is actually nothing new that the leaders of uh, Visegrad countries would actually issue their own statement. Uh, they usually, well, they coordinate their stances ahead of almost every uh, European Council summit. So we shouldn't be, uh, you know, reading between the lines. Um, but obviously, they were also trying to uh, to send the. Uh, a certain message in that um, in that joint statement. Indeed, there uh, it seems to me there are still more uh, points uh, where actually EU leaders disagree rather than agree. If you look at the um, uh, Visegrad joint statement, there is a very interesting notion that is developed there. Um, Visegrad countries would like to have so-called flexible solidarity oh, yeah, when it comes great. to uh, <laughs> EU's response to refugee crisis. Now, what it means, obviously, for each individual member state, it means something else. For Visegrad countries, um, it means that basically, uh, you know, uh, they shouldn't be forced uh, to accept um, uh, refugees and the um, allocation should be more voluntary. But there are also some other divisions and tensions, and not only between individual member states, but also between individual institutions. Um, we heard a lot ahead of the summit uh, about uh, certain um, power struggles between the European Council president and um, uh, European Commission president. Now, again, it's uh, nothing really new, um, especially in the light of, of crises that individual institutions clash over who should actually um, uh, take a lead uh, in sort of pushing forward new ideas. No, it is no secret that Donald Tusk and... Uh, Donald Tusk, the council president. Yes, European council president and uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, they clashed in the, past, in the past over the EU's response to refugee crisis. Um, 
at the end of the day, uh, it seems to me that uh, they realized that, uh, you know, the only thing that media picks up is basically power struggles and tensions, whereas um, and this ordinary citizens are interested in tangible results in individual actions, and they should really leave their weapons at the door, in this case, at the door mm -hmm. of the Bratislava castle. Uh, I guess that at the end of the day, they agreed the map, a roadmap, which all institutions um, committed to, to push forward. But obviously, we'll see what happens next. I mean, for me, the, the, there was a definite difference in tone between the letter that uh, Donald Tusk sent to the members of the European Council ahead of the Bratislava meeting and um, Juncker's State of the EU address to the European Parliament. And Tusk painted things in very dark colours, I, I thought. But don't, but don't you think that Tusk actually has a point uh, when he says that in times of increasing populism and uh, Euroscepticism, there is no time for real, really assertive EU institutions that, as he actually said in his letter, try to impose some priorities on member states. I guess in the times when there is such a huge distrust in EU institutions and basically in the European project, there should be a, a, an attempt to, you know, to look for this institutional balance. That's a tricky one because the opinion polling evidence in the immediate aftermath of, uh, of the Brexit vote was that actually trust in the European Union had gone up everywhere else, more or less everywhere else in, in Europe sort of rally around the European yeah, flag yeah, moment. Exactly. Yeah. The question of how best to deal with populism is is very, very difficult. I think there's quite an important reference in the Bratislava Declaration to loyal cooperation and communication. Uh, in other words, that countries shouldn't feed the populist beast by saying, you know, we've got to keep out Muslims because they're a threat to our way of life. They actually have to uh, accept that this is a general European problem and that their country as well as everybody else's country is going to have to face that in some way and when their countries are facing problems we also have to help them whether that's with economic crises or you know cohesion funds or whatever. Absolutely I just to, to add on what you said I think perhaps Tusk is in a slightly more difficult position than Juncker because he sits with um, still 28 EU leaders um, who have different views as some of them are facing elections uh, at home and some of them actually adopt a very much the populistic um, narrative uh, themselves so you know uh, he needs to try to at least reconcile the different concerns um, of all the leaders um, uh, at the European uh, Council table hence uh, probably you know this more pessimist a pessimistic tone also of, of his letter. It's true though I think that um, there's a shift in tone with relation to the power shift between institutions and member states. That's something that Federica Mogherini, the EU foreign affairs representative, also picked up when she said that we often think that because something is done between EU member states it's not European. Mm. But there is also another paradox in that if you um, if you look at the uh, public um, uh, opinion and actually the concerns that citizens have 
they are concerned about uh, migration, they are concerned about security threats. Um, but in fact, in order to deal with those threats, you need, in a way, more cooperation mm. and at, point, at, at times more integration, um, um, which I think uh, EU leaders still, they are still struggling to understand. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think the British have been an extreme case of that. Uh, the, the British public seems to think that you, know, you can solve all of these problems if only you're not in Europe. At some point, when we actually leave the EU, we're going to have a very rude awakening when we discover that all of these problems still exist and they're actually harder to solve if you're not part of the EU. And so it all comes back to Brexit, as mm. it so often does these days in, in London, at least when you talk about the EU. Anyway, thanks to both of you, Agatha and Ian, for sitting down with me. Thank you very and much. thanks to everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And if you did, we would love your feedback. If you could give us a rating on iTunes, that would be fantastic. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. You can find more on our website, cer.org.uk, or follow us on Twitter at CER underscore London.